back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. Bun, dun, dun. And I am your co-host, Austin. He's back. I'm fired up. He's so fired up. Why are you fired up? Just we haven't recorded in a while. I'm excited. Let's roll. Let's rock. Last week, I had to do it all by myself. People were probably so bored, missing you. Yeah, right. You're good at what you do. Oh, thanks. But I'm excited to be back. Let's talk about some really exciting things going on with Mama Mystery. We went to New York. That was so cool. I can't wait to tell you guys why, but just know that you'll be able to see it on TV. But it was awesome. Um, in November. It was awesome. It was so, so that was cool. fun. First time in New York. Kelly and Mama Mystery got us there. So thanks for listening, guys. That was pretty cool. And then um, we have <laughs> another trip coming up in September. We're going to Orlando for the Crime Con event. It is the biggest true crime event on the planet. If you are in the area or if you want to go, I really hope you will consider going because this is hosted by Oxygen every year. They have big, huge names in true crime that come to this event. Like Austin Evans. Like Austin Evans. But also they have Podcast Row. So all of your favorite podcasts, including some of my favorite podcasts, like The Prosecutors are going to be there. Murderish is going to be there. Um, Nancy Grace will probably be running around with her mouth. Oh my gosh. Like I just can't even imagine. So Mm -hmm. uh, Mama Mystery has a table there. I've always said... Someday I will be on Podcast Row at CrimeCon, and it's freaking happening. And I'm so grateful because the Prosecutors Pod, um, I've reached out to them, and we've talked back and forth because they've been so gracious and answering questions for me. If you have not listened to their podcast, I very strongly suggest you go check them out because they're just so witty, and they're so smart, um, and they're they're a great podcast. But they were willing to share a table with me um, so that I could be on Podcast Row either way. But now I actually get my own table all to myself. Um, and so I'm just super grateful and excited for this experience. So if you are going to be in the area, use the code Mama Mystery for a discount on your um, pass. And uh, definitely let me know so that I can look out for you guys. We'll meet and greet you. Yeah, heck yeah. And then the third big piece of information is Kelly is about to achieve her dream of becoming an author. Because she's dropping some books. Yes. So I kind of talked about this in the last episode, and I know you weren't here for that one. You probably didn't listen to it either, which is fine. But you've never listened to one of my podcasts yes, ever. That's Continue. not true. Continue. That's not true. <laughs> um, anyway, the the book, yes. Yeah, so Wicked Women is going to be coming out this spring. I'm so excited. Um, it'll be the first of a series. And so Mama Mystery is going to have books, a whole series of coffee table books. And then after that release, I'm going to be working on getting my personal book out, um, unrelated cool. to true crime. It's going to be great. So, so that's excited. three pieces of banger information. And thanks for all your support, guys. Yeah. All right. Um, Mama. Do you have anything else? Mystery. Wait, Just what? Just kidding. <laughs> do you have anything else? I got nothing else. Started? I always, like, I, I have it on my mind of all these things I want to talk about, and then we start recording, and I just forget. Let's ride. Okay. This is going to be a long episode, short episode, medium episode? Mm, I don't know. It's going to be an episode. It's Hell been yeah. highly requested. People have been asking me to cover this case because Apple TV just came out last year, I think, with a um, doc or not a documentary. It's a series, a scripted series, but it's based on true events and it's on the story of Larry Hall. So the show is called Blackbird. I watched it. It's great. Um, if you have time, you should definitely check it out. It's six episodes, but man, it's good. Taryn Edgerton plays Jimmy Keene. Um, Paul Walter Hauser plays um, Larry Hall. And then Ray Liotta is in it, and he passed away shortly after this like wrapped. So it's just kind of bittersweet seeing him 
act, um, especially because he plays a character whose health is failing. And so to see him on screen appearing to be struggling with his health, knowing that behind the scenes he probably was struggling with his own health um, is kind of eerie to watch. But it's very, very good. If you haven't checked it out, I definitely recommend it. And it's over this case. It's on this case, yes. Very cool. Okay, so this is the case. Let's go. Of Larry Hall. In the quiet town of Georgetown, Illinois, a chilling event unfolded on a crisp fall day in 1993. The picturesque countryside, usually serene, became the backdrop for a haunting disappearance that would send shockwaves through the community. It was a day that forever altered the lives of one family and left a trail of unanswered questions in its wake. Jessica Lynn Roach, affectionately known as Jessie, was a young girl with a promising future. Born on November 27, 1977, to devoted parents Charles and Terry Lynn Roach, she grew up in a tight-knit household alongside her two sisters and brother. The Roach family was deeply rooted in their faith as active members of the Church of Jehovah's Witnesses. Jessie, a spirited teenager, had a passion for literature and cherished the classic film Gone with the Wind, which, by the way, my mom loved that movie, and I have never watched it. I've heard of it, never seen it. I need to probably watch it because my mom always raved about it, but um, I know it's a popular movie. Anyway, above all, she had a dream of eventually becoming a pilot. But on that fateful afternoon of September 20th, 1993, tragedy struck the Roach family. As Jessica pedaled her bike along a tranquil country road, she suddenly vanished into thin air. And if you don't know what tranquil means, let me tell you because... We've had to pause twice because Kelly's laughing at me because I don't know what tranquil means. Tranquil means free from disturbance, calm. You've never heard tranquil. Like, I've heard of tranquility. Well, that's tranquil. It's oh, I don't know. Keep Austin. going. Who really gives You're a rip? So Kelly? hot. You're so pretty and just good looking. Keep going. Thank God. That's insulting. <laughs> News of Jessica's disappearance spread like wildfire. Frantic searches were launched, hopes clinging to the possibility of finding her alive. But as days turned into weeks and weeks into months, despair settled over the town like a heavy fog, and then a grim discovery shattered any remaining glimmer of hope. As a local farmer was tending his land just across the border in Indiana, he stumbled upon the remains of what appeared to be a young girl. Her body was in really bad shape, as it appeared it had been run over by other farm equipment. There was no way to identify her as her head was missing. But thankfully, her mother remembered that when she was a child, Jessie went to this safety presentation at her school hosted by local law enforcement a decade earlier. And part of their presentation was letting kids experience getting their fingerprints taken. I remember that. Like, uh, not Science City, but like... Like Safety Town. Safety Town. That was Mm -hmm. cool. Um, So Jessica's mom saved that fingerprint card. And detectives were able to confirm that the body did, in fact, belong to her sweet daughter, Jessie. Man, that's terrible. In the midst of their grief, Jessie's devastated family clung to the hope that answers would eventually come. And as they struggled with the unthinkable, one question remained on the forefront of their minds. Who could be capable of such evil? The murder of Jessica Lynn Roach set in motion a disturbing tale as the hunt for answers became an all-consuming obsession that would uncover some horrifying truths about other murders leading up to hers. This was the work of a serial killer. Over the course of the next decade, young girls were disappearing throughout the Midwest and the Great Lakes area. 
On February 5, 1981, 14-year-old Dean Marie Pyle Peters disappeared from Forest Hills Central Middle School in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She's never been found. On August 31, 1981, 12-year-old Deborah Jean Cole went missing after she was last seen at her home in Lebanon, Indiana. She's never been found. On June 29, 1982, 19-year-old Naomi Kidder was on a trip with friends in Rollins, Wyoming. That morning, she left their hotel and never returned. She was found three months later on September 10th in a shallow, incomplete grave, but her her remains wouldn't be positively identified until six months later. On August 6, 1985, 19-year-old Jennifer Lee Schmidt vanished from Purdue University. She's never been found. On August 11, 1985, the body of 21-year-old Marcy Fuller Swinford was found in a wooded area near Honey Creek in southern Vigo County, Indiana. She had been strangled and sexually mutilated. On March 23, 1986, 18-year-old Denise Diane Flume disappeared from Connorsville, Indiana. She's never been found. Folia Mylia Chavez, 28 years old. Kimberly Ann Thompson, 25 years old. Lindy Weldy, only 10 years old. Diana Jane Brongart, 18 years old. Wendy Felton, 16 years old. Paulette Webster, 19. Cynthia Carmack, 16. Andrea Bowman, 15. Penny Lease, 23. Lynn Thompson, 26. Good Lord. Tracy Crow, 17. Janet Dolgay, 28. Barrett Beck, 18. Julie Dalton, 29. Michelle Dewey, 20. Georgia Shreve, 37. Holly Anderson, 18. Lori Deppies, 20. Tony Spicer, 27. Bridget Claudefelter, 27. Laura Lynn Thompson, 15. Raina Risen, 16. Trisha Reitler, 19. Sarah Baim, 14. Shailene Farrell, 18. Catherine Menendez, 17. Carrie Smith, 20. These are all victims or alleged victims of this serial killer. And this doesn't even count all the Jane Doe's that were never positively identified. These were all in a pocket of like a region in Indiana, Michigan? This was all like in that Midwest area. Holy smokes. But at the time, police weren't aware of who could be doing this. And also worth noting, we did an episode a while back on the Springfield Three, which were Stacy McCall, Suzanne Streeter, and Cheryl Levitt, all from Springfield, Missouri, and they've never been found. Larry has been a person of interest in this case because a witness said they saw a blonde woman driving a Dodge van and heard a man to t- or heard a man tell the woman not to do anything stupid. Well, Larry Hall owned a van similar to the one witnesses described, so he's been considered in that case as well. In May of 1994, Amy Baker was outside rollerblading when she noticed a brown and tan van passing by her multiple times. Every time the van approached her, the driver would slow down and get closer each time, but never stopped. And then finally, a friend passed by, and she stopped them, telling them that what was going on. She warned them that if, if they didn't see her in 45 minutes to contact her parents and call the police with the description and license plate number of the van that she memorized. Thankfully, nothing happened to Amy, but when police ran the plates, they found that the van was registered to Larry Hall. That same day, two girls, Abby and Kaylin, 13 and 15 respectively, 
were riding their bikes when they noticed a van following closely behind them. They hurried to Kaylin's house, and when they got there, Abby called her grandma. Immediately, Abby's parents went out looking for the van, and they spotted it, but the driver of the van shut his lights off once he realized he was being watched. He then tried to escape, but got stopped at a red light. So Abby's mom was able to read his license plate and give it to the police, who then found that the van was registered to Larry Hall. The next day, May 30th, 1994, Larry was pulled over, and the officer who searched his van found a spray can of starter fluid, a cotton mask, cotton balls, a tarp, some knives, and some rope. Then they came upon multiple newspaper cutouts of Trisha Reitler's disappearance. He was arrested, and when he was confronted about the newspapers on Trisha, he confessed to killing Trisha. But then later, he told police that he was actually just talking about a dream he had, and that he actually did not commit the crime. And without her body or her burial site, Larry was actually released and painted as a guy who just lies to get attention. So the very next day, four girls were walking in Wabash County or Wabash City Park, excuse me, when they noticed a brown and tan van that appeared to be stalking them. The driver approached them and asked if they wanted to go for a ride. The girls ran to one of their houses and told their mom, who ran outside and yelled at the van as it drove off. One of the girls recalled that this same guy had actually approached her before. So the girl's dad went out looking for the van, and when he found it, the license plate was registered to... Larry. Yes. So while all these girls are going missing, there's simultaneously these girls reporting this potential stalker. And for Gary Miller at the Vermilion County Sheriff's Department, he started looking into the reports of Larry Hall and how many complaints were being made against him. So he started learning more about this Larry Hall. Because where there's smoke, there's fire. Mm-hmm. Today's episode is sponsored by StoryWorth. With Father's Day coming up, I have the best idea for a gift. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your dad, husband, uncle, father figure connect through sharing stories and memories and then preserves them for years to come. So here's how it works. Every week, StoryWorth will email your loved one with a thought-provoking question of your choice from a vast array of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions you may never have thought to ask, like, what's your fondest childhood memory? Or have you ever feared for your life? You'll enjoy reading the responses, and after one year, StoryWorth compiles all those questions and stories, including family photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that the whole family can share for generations to come. Give all the fathers in your life a meaningful gift that you can both cherish for years to come. Think about how cool that would be to have a, a coffee table book of your stories, your family's stories. It's so personal to you. It's so easy. You don't have to go through all the work of compiling all these questions or coming up with questions. StoryWorth has a pool of questions you can choose from, or you can customize the questions yourself. So this is a great personal gift. This is something that is going to keep on giving for years to come. So give all the fathers in your life a meaningful gift that you can both cherish. Right now, for a limited time, you can save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com 
slash mama mystery. That's S T O R Y W O R T H dot com slash mama mystery to save $10 off your first purchase. Storyworth.com slash mama mystery. Larry Hall was born as a twin on December 11th, 1962 to his parents, Robert Hall and Era Hall. Robert worked as a grave digger in a local cemetery. He had a really severe drinking problem and eventually was let go from his job as a grave digger because he was mistakenly putting the wrong bodies in the wrong holes, apparently. I mean, how do you mess that up? I don't know. It's a pretty serious thing to mess up when your job's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Dig holes. Put the people in them. Right. That's it. (laughs) When Larry and his twin, Gary, were born, Larry was taken to the neonatal intensive care unit due to a monochorionic pregnancy. This phenomenon happens in only about 0.3% of pregnancies, and it's when twins share only one placenta. The most common complication among monochorionic pregnancies is when their intertwined circulatory systems cause a disproportionate blood supply, also known as TTTS, or twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. In Larry and Gary's case, Gary received the majority of the blood and oxygen supply while Larry suffered. As they grew up, Gary essentially thrived while Larry fell behind. In elementary school, Larry was antisocial and struggled with a very low IQ, bedwetting, and night terrors. He was also awkward, sloppy, and destructive, making him pretty unapproachable. Meanwhile, his brother Gary had lots of friends and girlfriends, and he tried to help his brother improve his social life. But he said Gary, or I'm sorry, he said Larry was evil and tried to kill him multiple times growing up. During one event, he said that he woke up in the middle of the night to find his brother standing over him with a huge long stick ready to, quote, smash his skull. End quote. Holy shit. While the twins were in high school, they both got arrested for breaking the windows of a store downtown. Larry was also suspected of committing other crimes like arson, vandalism, and petty crimes in Wabash, but charges were never pressed. After graduating from high school, Larry and Gary discovered a shared interest, which was Civil War reenactments. Are you familiar with what that is? No. So these... It's kind of like this group of guys that dress up like military soldiers from way back in the day, and they literally reenact the wars. Okay. I'm a little bit familiar. I went to see the movie Air recently at the Mm -hmm. movie theater. Hadn't been to the movies in years. Mm -hmm. And there was a couple behind me, super nice people, but they were going in to see some like renaissance gladiator type movie. Mm -hmm. And they were telling me about how they... I don't know what they call it, but they go to like parks and stuff with groups of people and they all dress up as like cosplay. Yeah. And they all dress up and they beat the shit out of each other with swords, <laughs> like pool noodles and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, cool, man. They seemed like it was a lot of fun. I was like, hey, right on. <laughs> Do whatever floats your boat. You know, at least they're not like really killing people. Yeah. Well, that's the goal, right? Is to just have fun, but don't hurt anybody. Get your rocks off, but let's not actually kill people. Yeah. Yeah. Follow. For sure. So um, anyway, this newfound hobby became a gateway for the duo, allowing them to visit historic battlefields across the country. For Gary, who was an enthusiast of military history, the attraction to Civil War reenacting came naturally. 
With his passion fueling his dedication, he quickly made connections, forming friendships, and ascending the ranks within the reenactment community. These people behind me in the movie theater, they said that like it all, I said, how do you find these other people that want to dress up and play sword fighting? And they were like, you'd be surprised how many people will just like see you out there and come join. And I think of it like being little kids, like, you know, little kids just like they'll play with each other for like three days straight. And like, you're like, what's your friend's name? And they're like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's these people. Like, I feel like they like see people at the park beating the shit out of each other with pool noodles and like Renaissance wear. They're probably like, I want to hang out with those people. And they walk up and they say, can I join? Mm -hmm. And they're in their outfit and they're ready to start fighting. And Mm -hmm. then they start doing it. And before you know it, you have a whole clan. Yes, exactly. Wildest shit I ever heard of. You nailed it. Yeah. Very very familiar. Go ahead. (laughs) Anything else you want to say about the people in the movie theater? (laughs) I don't think so right now. You might spark something though. Continue. Okay. So Larry also um, embraced this unconventional pastime with a passion. fill up a pillowcase full of bars of soap beat the shit out of you and beat you to death with it if you're gonna yeah. quote movies you gotta get the quotes right austin i'm gonna quit interrupting now please go i'm bushing the mic away from my face that'd be great so anyway he, um larry found camaraderie among the like-minded individuals he encountered along the way so finally he was making friends Immersing himself further into the role, Larry underwent a physical transformation, shaving his face with these thick mutton chop sideburns. So they literally came all the way down, and then there was like a gap on his chin with no hair. But I mean, it was like these big, puffy, black, I don't know, mutton Lamb chops. Lamb chops. Lamb chops, sure. Lamb chops. Um, and so his brother, however, believed that it was really just to conceal the cystic acne that he had on his face. And Gary also believed that Larry fell in love with reenactments so much because he could just use that as his excuse to be dirty and have poor hygiene. Because I guess he smelled terrible. But if he's, you know, fully immersed in this role, he's like, well, back in the day, soldiers didn't wear deodorant either. So maybe that's part of the part of the gig is you got to smell like an onion. Yeah, he really just went full throttle with it. In October of 1994, Detective Gary Miller wanted to bring Larry in for questioning. He noticed a disturbing correlation between the girls who were going missing to the locations of the war reenactments. So Larry was brought into the Wabash, Indiana Police Department for questioning, and detectives claimed that when they showed him a picture of Jessica Roach, Larry had a strong physical reaction, nearly refusing to look at her picture. However, he denied ever seeing her before. Larry was questioned for two and a half hours, continuing to insist he knew nothing about Jessica Roach's disappearance. And he was then released due to the lack of evidence. Two weeks later, he was brought in once again for questioning. And this time, Larry Hall gave a confession, but quickly tried to recant that confession, saying he was just describing a dream that he had. Again. Mm -hmm. Ridiculous. According to his defense team, this was ultimately a coerced confession, but he revealed things that only Jesse's killer could have known. So this was enough to place Larry under arrest and charge him with kidnapping for the purpose of sexual gratification, although they couldn't charge him with murder until they could pinpoint exactly where she died. He went to trial on the kidnapping charge and was found guilty in June of 1995, and he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. 
On appeal, his defense team argued that the confession he gave was taken after more than 12 hours of interrogation, an interrogation that was unfortunately not recorded, and Larry's defense team filed a motion to suppress the confession, alluding to unprofessional conduct by the detectives, and the court agreed. Larry could walk free. That is until the case of Trisha Reitler. So Trisha Lynn Reitler was born on February 9th of 1974 to Gary and Donna Reitler near Cleveland, Ohio. She was the oldest of four kids, and her father said, quote, she was a strong-willed child. She was our firstborn, so she had all the characteristics of a firstborn child, end quote. She loved her little siblings and acted like a mother to them, even pretending to be their mother at times. Trisha was a college student at Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. Her parents had encouraged her to attend the university because the school operated on the same religious mor morals and values as the Reitler family. She wanted to become a psychologist to help families, specifically broken families, and putting them back together. She was on an academic scholarship and actively training to join the track team. Her father remembers dropping her off at school in the spring of 1993 and Trisha begging him not to leave. And a few days later, she disappeared. Trisha was studying in her dorm room when she grew restless, so she decided to take a break and walk to a nearby grocery store. She purchased a root beer and a magazine and then left the store, but she never made it back to her dorm room. Her blood-soaked jeans were found on the path back to her dorm room, but her remains have never been found. She is presumed dead, but her family holds out hope that they can bring her remains home one day. Investigators said six or seven unidentified people were playing basketball near where her body was found, but none of them had any information regarding Trisha or what could have happened to her. At one point, a man named Donald Greiner was considered to be a possible suspect, and he was arrested and charged in 1999 with the abduction and molestation of a young girl from the same area, but nothing was discovered in the search that was, that was conducted on his property to tie him to Trisha's disappearance. The day after Larry Hall confessed to the murder of Jessica Roach, he claimed he was only telling authorities about his dream and recanted the entire confession. But in his van, police found items indicative of Larry's guilt. They found a hatchet, rope, a fingernail, hacksaw, masks, duct tape, a blood-stained napkin, a student ID, and extra license plates. These included a map that had markings where Jessica was abducted and where her body was found, and newspaper clippings of both Trisha Reitler and Jessica Roach's disappearances. All sketchy shit. Yes. That you shouldn't have. The only thing I might have of those in my vehicle is the bud napkin from like a bloody nose. Okay. Well, let's maybe not tell everybody that you have like bloody napkins in your car, but you do often get bloody noses. But all that other shit, there's really no reason you should have any of that. Correct. There were also handwritten notes where Larry described stalking women outside the same grocery store where Trisha was last seen. So along with that handwritten note, there was also a to-do list, including tasks like, quote, cut out stained carpet, burn paint tarps, buy new hacksaw blades, clean all tools. I mean, it's like pretty cut and dry. It's incriminating. Like you should be yeah. guilty. 
for sure. So police now believed Larry Hall was responsible for Trisha's death. In fact, he admitted to that murder as well and then recanted it. With lack of hard evidence, no charges were filed against Larry Hall in connection to Trisha Reitler's disappearance. Such bullshit. Mm -hmm. They needed something harder. They needed something stronger. When you said you did it, that should be it. That should be it, but... I don't know. They it's needed not more. golf. You hit a shitty shot and I'll just tee another one up. Mm-hmm. No, you confess to a murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but here's the thing. A lot of these guys will give false confection, confessions because either they want the notoriety of being the one who committed the, that crime or because they just want the attention. Like they, You're messed up in the head. I mean, he's messed up in the head. He has a very low IQ. He's obviously got issues. Um, why would you lie about something you didn't do? I do not know. But it happens. It does happen. And so I think that's why when they say, no, actually, that's not true, then, you know, it's really going to be hard to argue that in front of a jury. But don't you think we should start doing something about the people who say they did the shit so then we stop that game? Yeah. Like, if you do that, it's an automatic three years in jail. So there are penalties for giving false confessions or making a false report. In fact, one... TikTok mom or like social media influencer mom just got in really big trouble because she lied to police about this like uh, attempted kidnapping outside of like a Target or something. You know, it was like a Michaels or a Target or something like that. And she made it all up. And when police realized she made it up, they pressed charges on her and she's facing jail time for lying. So you can get in trouble for lying to the police. Yeah. But it's just unfortunate that you can lie about committing a crime like this and not be charged with the actual crime itself. You can just be charged with lying. That's where I think the frustration comes in. Mm -hmm. So anyway, detectives and Trisha Reitler's family were determined to find answers and get closure in her case. And not only that, but detectives needed to make sure Larry stayed behind bars and did not win his appeal. So detectives devised this really unique plan. They identified a convicted drug dealer with no history of violence who had recently received a federal prison sentence of 10 years, James Keene. In 1998, after serving 10 months of his 10-year sentence without parole, James, or Jimmy Keene, received an unexpected proposition from federal prosecutor Lawrence Beaumont. Beaumont presented Jimmy with a deal that involved transferring him to a maximum security prison in Springfield, Missouri, which housed the criminally insane. The offer stipulated that if Jimmy could successfully coax alleged serial killer Larry Hall into confessing to his crimes and revealing undisclosed information, including the whereabouts of Trisha Reitler's body, he would be granted an immediate early release from prison. Why'd they pick this dude? Because he was very charismatic and personable. They, well, and also there's another reason, which I'll get to in a second, as to why he accepted the deal. But I think they they realized how useful his personality and his charisma could be in getting Larry to befriend him and trust him and kind of act like his older brother. You know, Larry's older brother, Gary, was more sociable and like kind of took Larry under his wings at time at times. And so I think they were looking for someone who could kind of portray his older brother in that way. Interesting. 
So initially, Jimmy hesitated and declined Beaumont's offer, expressing concerns about the potential dangers involved. Like, you're going to a prison that houses the criminally insane who have committed crimes. Mm -hmm. That's really scary. And he admitted to Beaumont that he had no prior experience dealing with serial killers, which added to his apprehension. But Jimmy's dad was gravely ill. He had suffered a stroke and his health was declining. And this is who Ray Liotta played in the show. So he knew that if he had to spend the next 10 years in prison with no chance of parole, you're spending every minute of those 10 years in prison, he may never see his dad again. So Jimmy accepted the deal and was sent to the same prison as Larry Hall, the medical center for federal prisoners in Springfield, Missouri. They had never used a current inmate in a plan like this before. This was completely unprecedented. So Jimmy Keene assumed the role of a special informant and went undercover. With his charismatic demeanor, he was able to establish a friendship with Larry Hall by portraying himself as this cool guy and showering him with positive attention, almost acting like his older brother, like a protective big brother. Jimmy even stood up for Larry during a violent altercation in the jail, which ultimately landed himself in solitary confinement for a short time. However, this act of loyalty and protection earned Larry's respect and trust. So once Jimmy was released from solitary confinement, he spent a significant amount of time with Larry, and it took months of being friendly with Larry to finally get him to let his guard down enough to talk about why he was there. And it was during these interactions that Larry confessed to strangling Jessica Roach. A few weeks later, he admitted to the murder of Trisha Reitler. No way. He claimed he had blacked out and had no memory of the actual killing. And according to Larry's account, he had buried Trisha in the woods with a chemical compound that he learned about in his early years of helping his father dig graves. And whatever this chemical compound was would help conceal and or destroy anyone he buried. So that explains why a lot of the girls who have gone missing where he is a suspect or person of interest have never been found. Mm -hmm. Now imagine for a moment being forced to sit through and listen to the details of this sick person's crimes from the guy himself. He detailed how Jessica Roach begged for her mom. He detailed how he tied a belt around her neck and attached both ends of the belt to a stick, twisting and turning it so tight until she stopped making any sounds. Gosh, it's like miserable to even hear now. Imagine hearing right. from the guy. Exactly. It's difficult to talk about or listen to on a podcast. I can't even imagine listening to him in person talk about it with those mutton chops on his face and his smell and just, I mean, it would make me sick. Mm-hmm. So naturally, Jimmy Keene began to feel deeply disgusted and uncomfortable in Larry's presence. And maintaining their friendship became increasingly difficult for him. Several days after the confession, Jimmy stumbled upon Larry carving wooden falcons and placing them on a map encompassing Illinois, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Indiana. Larry explained to Keene that these wooden falcons were meant to watch over the dead. So sensing that the map could lead to Trisha's body... Jimmy immediately tried to call his connections on the outside to let them know what he had learned. But the resident psychologist 
was on vacation and he was unable to make any outside calls. So before he was able to tell the FBI or Beaumont or anybody what he had learned, Jimmy snapped. He broke. He unleashed his fury onto Larry, calling him every despicable name that came to mind and blew his cover. This led to an altercation. I got the goosebumps. That's wild. I would not, was not expecting this. Mm-hmm. This led to a big altercation between Larry and Jimmy, and Jimmy was sent to stay in solitary confinement for two weeks. Mm. So two weeks went by, giving Larry enough time to dispose of the map that he drew and get rid of anything in his cell that might incriminate him. Jimmy's probably like, I want the hell out. Oh, for sure. But he's in solitary confinement. He has no connection to the outside world to tell them what is going on. And they're not checking in with him? Mm -mm. No, because the psychologist was on vacation and there was no other way for anyone to contact Jimmy or for Jimmy to contact anyone else. You're in solitary confinement. You don't get phone calls. You don't even get to see the light of day. It's wild. So with this, the mission was a failure. However, Jimmy was able to relay information Larry told him that nobody else could have known unless they committed the crimes. And that alone was instrumental in making sure Larry could not and would not win any future appeals. Everyone, including Jessica Roach's parents, knew that the police and FBI had the right man in custody. And when Larry Hall confessed, he described finding Jessica walking her bike up a narrow road. Jessica's parents had told her to do this since their narrow road wasn't safe. And it was a detail they had never told the press. So Jimmy Keene passed a polygraph with regard to the confessions and other valuable information that Larry had told him. The polygraph convinced Assistant U.S. Attorney Lawrence Beaumont that Jimmy Keene had actually succeeded. In total, he got confessions pertaining to Larry Hall's involvement in the disappearance of 20 young girls. The new evidence was the main reason that the judge in Hall's case denied his appeal. After Jimmy's efforts to coax a confession from Larry Hall failed to reveal the location of Trisha Reitler's body like they originally wanted, Prosecutor Lawrence Beaumont still commended Jimmy for his valuable contribution to society. Beaumont successfully convinced the sentencing judge to acknowledge Jimmy's work despite the lack of crucial information. And as a result, Jimmy's early release from prison was granted. And Beaumont advocated for expunging his record entirely. So Jimmy Keene's conviction, eight years of parole, and a hefty $2.5 million fine were all wiped clean. And now he doesn't even have as much as a traffic ticket on his record. I was going to say, tell me he kept it clean since then. Yes. Good. That's awesome. Shout out Jimmy. You're listening, (laughs) homeboy. That's great. So it's worth noting that this mission marked a historic milestone as it was the first and only federal undercover operation of its kind conducted within a maximum security prison. Beaumont had persistently pursued this idea despite getting pushback. He made five attempts before finally receiving approval from the U.S. Department of Justice. However, due to concerns about safety of civilians in these types of operations, they have since been prohibited. So they don't do anything like this anymore. I bet they still do. <laughs> it's just like one of those things. It's low key. Like, 
Oink. We, yeah, we don't I mean, do it's that a, anymore. It's pretty sophisticated if you think about it. Let's take this federally housed inmate mm-hmm. and send them over here and have them coax. It's like a CI. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't yeah. know. I wouldn't be surprised if it still happens, but yeah. who knows? So Jimmy Keene went on to become a successful businessman, author, and the executive producer in the hit series Blackbird on Apple TV. Really? That is freaking crazy. That's yeah. a good story. He actually had a cameo in the final episode, too. So in the final episode, it shows three guards carrying Taron Edgerton, or Jimmy Keene's character, into solitary confinement after he had gone off on Larry. And the real Jimmy Keene was cool. portraying one of the guards that was carrying him into solitary confinement. So he played a big part in this series, making sure everything was accurate. The only thing that was not accurate according to what really truly happened was in the series, one of the correctional officers tries to extort Jimmy Keene for like $10,000. That was completely fictional. But everything else in the series is pretty accurate. So I thought that was interesting. I think it's cool when they put people in a cameo spot Mm -hmm. and you don't know unless like you know. Yes, like Erin Brockovich. um, She actually, so that that movie is based on a true story. And the real Erin Brockovich plays the waitress in the movie that is serving Julia Roberts, who's playing Erin Brockovich's character. That's just one example. And on Sandlot, in the beginning, they talk about Maury Wills breaking the stolen bass record in 1962. And then in the final scene where J- Benny the Jet Rodriguez is stealing home, Maury Wills is the third base coach. Oh, my God. I did not know that. Yeah, nobody does. And so. we've watched that so many times. You've never told me that. Yeah, because nobody probably cares, but I think it's cool. That is cool. You, you're you into that kind of stuff, that sports stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's like the same thing as this for you, you know? Well, yeah, yeah. It's true. So, anyway, the, sh- the series on um, Apple TV, it's called Blackbird. It stars Taron Edgerton, Paul Walter Hauser, and Ray Liotta right before he died, like I said. And the series closely depicts what actually happened within the prison. And it was nominated for three awards at the Golden Globes. Taron Edgerton was nominated for Best Actor for his role playing Jimmy Keene. Paul Walter Hauser won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor for his role playing Larry Hall. And it's also been nominated for two Critics' Choice Award and SAG Awards. So you got me wanting to watch this. It's really good. I think you would like it. Let's it's start really, watching really it. really, good. Taron Edgerton does a very good job in this series. Okay, I can obviously tell by Kelly's reaction right now that he's an attractive dude. Moving on. Did Larry he, Hall get the death he's penalty? Totally, no, he's, he's still alive. In fact, he will serve the rest of his life in prison. He has no chance of parole. He will die there, as he should. And he is currently housed at FCC Butner in North Carolina. <sighs> Taryn Edgerton is gay, so. <laughs> okay. It's just, you know, that's just the way it goes. That's just the way it goes. They usually are, except for you. You're you're an anomaly because you are really hot and you are straight as they come. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're we're gonna end on that note. Thanks everybody for listening. Mama <laughs> Mystery. Out. Bye. Well done, Kelly. Thanks, babe.